this week on Dig Me Out? It's just uh, intellectually dishonest, like not a way, completely void of reality and facts. Tim and Jay review at Action Park by Shellac. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 193, our fourth season of Dig Me Out, trudging ever so slowly towards number 200, our big bicentennial episode. And uh, this week, as we have done... Uh, recently, we're reviewing a band from the 90s who happened to have a new release out. In this case, it's not a, a, a front man putting out a solo release like we did previously with Whiskey Town and Soul Coughing. Uh, their respective lead singers had solo albums out at the time. Uh, this week, it's a little bit different. We're doing a, it's a band putting out a new record, and they're called Shellac. Jay, are you familiar with uh, the band called Shellac? Yeah. I had the record. Uh, don't remember when I bought it, but uh, it's in my collection. So I was aware of it and I've listened to it prior to this assignment. Do you have any other shellac records? I'm, cu- I'm curious. No, 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 just this one. Just this one. Well, we're doing the first shellac record. It's called At Action Park, uh, which I learned in reading about this record is not a reference to the infamous new jersey theme park called action park jay do you know about that place Mm-mm, no so there was a park it was open for a couple decades it's called a- action park it closed in 96 because there were numerous fatalities and basically this was like the park where you could do anything so like they set up insane rides and like if you wanted to ride a dirt bike through a flaming hoop they would set it up and that would be the attraction like any anything you could think of that was insane or dangerous, it was at Action Park. Okay. And, and then a lot of people died and they decided to close it. <laughs> I would suggest Googling Action Park and, and reading about it. There's a documentary about it as well. Where was about, this at? It was State? in New Jersey. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like something I expect to see down here in Texas. No, no. This is in the, the wilds of New Jersey. Huh. Yeah. Never I believe it, it opened in the 70s. And, uh, you know, in the 70s, there weren't really a lot of laws. And uh, it wasn't until, uh, you know, in the 80s when things like drinking ages and stuff like that, you know, it was just it was lawless basically up until the 80s. And uh, oh, I know I uh, our first uh, Fourth of July down here in Texas, I was reminded of Ohio in the 70s just because there are basically no laws here for fireworks and. That's the way it was in Ohio in the seventies, but mm-hmm. so it reminded me of being a little kid, where it was just essentially a, for the whole day or two, just dangerous shit happening everywhere. <laughs> People <laughs> riding around and lighting things off and giant fires. And so, just, were you dressed like uh, like Jeremy Renner in the Hurt Locker in full like uh, gear, in case any explosives went off around? There you? are moments when I felt like we probably should be. <laughs> <laughs> okay but in a weird way it reminded me of being a kid and you know riding around the back of a pickup while all this kind of 
craziness was going on. Gotcha. Well, we should talk about some history of shellac for those unaware. History of the band. The band formed in Chicago, Illinois in 1992. It was a a collaboration between uh, guitarist Steve Albini, who's also known as a producer and um, poker player, food blogger, various other things he does, uh, and drummer Todd Trainer. They were originally joined by bassist Camilo Gonzalez from the band Naked Ray Gun. Uh, he plays on one song on Schlack's first single, and then Bob Weston, who was in a band called Volcano Sons, joined as the permanent bass player. A couple of interesting notes about... Well, I'll, I'll get into the releases. First of all, the first album came out after two years after they formed, 1994, at Action Park, which I mentioned is not actually related to the... Um, the park itself it was just something that the drummer Todd Trainer came up. He thought it was cool sounding. Uh, three uh, three years later, they released the album The Futurist, which was an instrumental album. And it was recorded for the modern dran- dance troupe La 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 Human Steps. They didn't particularly like the recording, so they didn't want it released uh, to a wide audience. So they only produced about 779 copies of the record and they on the album cover is the name of each person they were giving the album to and they circled the name and gave the album to that person so that if anybody ended ended up selling the record they would know who did it because it had their copy was signed or was circled in 1998 they released the album terraform in 2000 1000 hertz there was a break between 2000 and 2007 when they released Excellent Italian Greyhound, and they have a new album out uh, right now. It's called Dude Incredible. And it's not Dude, comma, Incredible. It's Dude Incredible, like Major Awesome or Captain Sweet. I don't know. Uh, but Dude Incredible, that's the new record. So a couple of notes about Shellac. Um, the sound of the band... Uh, comes from the fact that they, uh, uh, well, Steve Albini has a, a enthusiasm for uh, Travis Bean guitars, which are aluminum based. Um, he also uses a, a specific guitar pedal called an Interfax harmonic percolator distortion pedal, which I've never heard of before. And then uh, one other note is that, and I just found this funny, is that during um, many of their live performances, during the middle of the show, they'll often stop and do a question and answer period. So that's the history and some notes on shellac. That would seem to be a momentum killer. It would seem to be, unless you're, you're you're particularly funny. Yeah. So if you'd like to suggest an, sorry, if you would like to suggest an album for us to review, please review, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We got a couple pieces of Facebook feedback on this record. Sean Michael Foster says, A whole nother level of goodness in this record. Their first full length, definitely not an unsung gem. It's a classic. And Gavin Reed hmm. said, So glad someone requested this. I would have otherwise incredibly difficult band, but if you love them, you l- if you see them live, you love them. Um, saw them last year. So 
That's our feedback. Those are our notes. Let's talk about what we liked and what we didn't like about this record. Jay, I'm going to throw it to you first. You were more familiar. I'd actually not listened. I mean, I had briefly streamed some shellac uh, a while back just to check them out. Um, I had listened to some of um, Albini's earlier stuff with Big Black. I haven't listened to Rape Man, which is the band in between uh, Big Black and, and Shellac. But uh, I wasn't quite as familiar. So going back, Jay, um, and revisiting this, tell me, what did what what'd you like about this record? Uh, I'm a fan of the, well, part, sometimes I'm, I'm a fan of the Travis Bean guitar sound. If you, I don't know if you, uh, you recognized it, but it's the same, essentially the same sound that you hear on the Criteria records. Mm-hmm. Um, same guitar. I think it creates a very uh, a guitar sound that that lends itself to being um, rhythmic, almost like a percussion instrument. And I think what Schlack does um, that's most interesting to me is they combine that with a melodic bass and uh, it can create some pretty interesting results. So like the opening track, um, you know, it's a pretty cool riff, but it's very repetitive guitar wise. Uh, but when the bass comes in, it, it plays this melody that uh, it, it actually makes the riff sound like it's shifting and changing, but it's not, it's just choosing different bass notes. Um, I, I just like that dynamic uh, so that the bass starts to pull you through the song, uh, and the and the guitar is more of a rhythm instrument, mm-hmm. which is a pretty cool dynamic. It kind of shifts up, I think, what we traditionally think of those two instruments doing, whereas guitar is providing more of a a melodic uh, sense that you're gonna write a vocal around, and sort of hold the melody of the song together, and then the bass and the drums are gonna provide all the rhythm. Um, so I just <clears throat> that's one of the things that I really found interesting about the band. Um, and uh, when I was listening to him at the time, what uh, what I was listening to them for. That's probably the biggest thing I like about him. How about you? Well, for me, I, I think one the thing that really struck me that uh, I really enjoyed was the how he's able to take that with you mentioned with the with the uh, Travis Bean guitar and I, Criteria was the band I was trying to think of that had that same sound. Um, have this abrasiveness, but it's still mm-hmm. melodic and it's still mm-hmm. like I think because it's so um, it's not. 
distorted in a way that you would normally think of distortion. Um, mm. It's it's this weird whatever distortion pedal that he's using. Um, it's so refined and so I don't know if they're like if it's like compression on it or something like that, but there's just like so much space, but yet the and the instruments are taking up their sound huge that it creates this like really unique combination of industrial but still being human and post-punk and there's all these sorts of weird things going on you can hear all these weird influences of like you know wire and the melvins and minutemen and all these like cool weird sounds going on just created by these three guys um and these oddly you know these very odd instruments that they've chosen um and i just appreciated the fact that you know this is heavy but without being i don't know like heavy in that like sludgy sense it's i think because the the bass is still is pretty like midi that the mid-rangey um it's not like thunderous and like real deep sounding there's just like this perfect combination of what each instrument sounds and it helps to have a really great producer in the band who's able to get all of the sounds out of these bands and get them to work or all all the sounds out of these instruments and get them to work in in harmony that way and i like the fact that they pay no attention whatsoever to traditional songwriting uh you know they will ride one verse and but do subtle shifts within that for an entire song um and most of these songs are actually fairly short. You're talking about stuff that's in the, you know, as short as two minutes and 20 seconds until really the last song's like over five minutes, but that's it. I mean, most of them are in like the two and a half to four and a half minute range. Yeah. Um, and they're pretty compact. Some of the songs only have like one or two parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just do a lot of subtle shifts within those parts the way that the rhythm plays, the way that the whether the bass is um, distorted or not, or sometimes they, uh, I'm guessing it's Albini. Sometimes we'll switch to like a kind of a lead kind of sound um, for some of the songs. I guess the two. I, I guess I covered two things there. One is I, I like that their complete lack of like traditional songwriting approach, which makes it sound really refreshing. And then the other thing is is the fact that it's abrasive yet accessible i don't know if that's the word I, I, I there's no entry point to this band that i can think of on this record where i could go you know someone who listens to just regular rock and roll i'm like well here's the band that'll draw you in or here's the song that'll draw you in yeah but if you're if you're a fan of like at the drive-in yeah yeah i see i i could clearly see the connection where you'd be like this is a bit less melodic and a bit less you know punk than at the drive-in but there's a clear line to this band yeah that was probably my point of familiarity was made aware of this band about the time i got in the at the drive-in so um that was the thing i latched onto at first uh, and that mostly had to do with sort of the vocal delivery on some of the songs uh, this is definitely a lower i want to say lower energy it's a little bit more plotting and deliberate and a little, you know, it's not as up up pay, up tempo and fast paced as uh, at the driving can be at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they can they construct movements and um, create 
kind of phrases that they play off of, and, and that's how they build the songs, um, which is an interesting concept. So they forgo, you know, traditional verse chorus to more of a, I don't know, probably closer to like a classical music approach in terms of, you know, you're constructing themes and then you play off of those themes in different ways and then you create a new one um, that relates to the previous one and there's, you know, crescendos and they don't get real quiet, but there are some quiet parts, quieter parts. Dynamically, it's, I think the drums probably provide most of the dynamic in terms of what instrument they play off of and what role they play. If they're breaking down or you know, locked up with the bass or cut time or what have you, um, it seems like the dr- the drums in a lot of ways are providing that dynamic. What did you think about the vocals throughout the record? I, the vocals to me are the probably the weakest link. It's not that they're bad; it's just that um, it's that sort of like shouty style is not necessarily my favorite um there's just not a lot of personality to it um just sort of a person yelling or sort of growling i guess you know over whatever parts there are there's not a lot of there's actually not a lot of vocals i mean there's a couple of instrumental songs on the record and then there's a couple songs like you mentioned the opening track my black ass it has a long intro part where there's no vocals at all and there's, there's quite a few songs that have large spaces without any vocals or just one sort of line for the entire song or one or two lines. Um, so it, it almost is, I don't want to say irrelevant, but that was the least interesting part of the band for me. I, I like the vocals more than you did. And, and I, it's actually interesting when I revisit the record now that um, I think I was drawn more to the instrumental portions uh, previously and now when I listen to it I'm actually drawn more to the vocal portions and even the songs uh, in the middle of the record songs 5, 6, and 7, songs of minerals a minute and uh, the idea of north I really listen to those, those those tunes in general they're way more they seem way more vocally oriented like the vocal isn't just an attacked on piece which I think in some of the other stuff um, that you talked about, it, it almost, you know, it really feels like the, the vocal was just kind of stuck on, um, kind of ins- inconsequential, like it, some of the songs um, would be fine without it. But I was actually drawn to that that portion of the record where the, the vocals definitely felt like it was a bigger part of the song and the band was kind of playing off of it more. And Songs of the, of the Minerals, it's actually very intertwined between the bass and the drums. And at one point, um, I'm sorry, the guitar and the bass. And at one point, the, the guitar riff starts to mimic the vocal melody, which is, you know, um, I think probably the only part of the album where, the, where something like that happens. And I really enjoyed that.
felt a lot more integrated and the, the, the vocal, I think, fit and had a place much better um, when things were oriented around it more. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the quality of the vocal and the delivery of it, it's a, you know, it's, it's a particular taste and I'm sure some people wouldn't be, you know, pulled in by it or impressed by it. But um, if you, if you don't mind it or are used to it, I guess, um, I felt like there was some, it's underserved um, to be short about it, I guess. Uh, could play, could have played maybe a bigger role than it did. Well, I felt like uh, a song like A Minute, uh, track six, it, the vocal's fine. It just felt like it could have been any sort of throwaway line. Like it's so like it doesn't even come in until like a minute and a half into the song, and it's pretty much paired up exactly with like the, he's singing to the rhythm of the song, um, and it it just feels like it could have been anything that he was singing. Like it didn't really matter what the words were; just they were just the, the cadence was just matching the, the the rhythm of the track. It's kind of hooky, though. I don't know. It's like it it's does, not bad. It does play off the guitar, but it's still like, you know, I don't know. I found myself kind of getting into it the the way it repeats and kind of pulls you in. And um, I mean, at, at no point does it really do anything different. Like it doesn't ever, um, you know, come at the song from a completely different angle that you weren't expecting. But uh, I guess I just found it if they were going to have it to be better integrated with the song um and i felt like those three were good examples of when it is more integrated than some of the others where it's definitely just kind of on top see like on a song like um dog and pony show i felt like even though that felt really i don't know not familiar per se but it sounded like when we listened to not like tad probably more melvin's oh um, yeah um that to me felt like a, a more independent vocal. Like the vocal was a little bit more uh, important to the song than in some of the other tracks. Probably because it was a bit slower and there yeah. was more space for the vocal to do things. Mm. As opposed to when it's more up tempo, I feel like the, then the vocal just sort of gets locked in with the, the rhythm part. Like on, yeah. I mentioned with on a, in a, a minute.
you know, it's not uh, again none of the none of the tracks in terms of the vocal are always like, oh, this track, this vocal is killing it for me. Which yeah, is like, no. it kind of just it doesn't it didn't matter as much as some of the other ones like Dog and Pony Show, which I which I liked a lot. I actually found um, song like Bosha's Dick. <laughs> uh, was a good example. It happens maybe a couple other times on the record where I don't know the riffs get a little too I don't know stereotypical tuned down, you know, drop tuning riff fest, and it and it felt a little cheap to me and like didn't work as well. Um, I kind of like when guitar wise it's coming from more of a weird like yeah a dissonant kind of place. Bigger, mm. bigger chords that are maybe even a little noisy, but in allowing the uh, the bass to provide the groove and the melody, and just have this um, guitar dropping over top with these weird phrases and things to kind of shift the shift the feel of it. Um, when it turned into sort of this locked up riff fest, I, I was a little less into it. I felt like uh, a song like Nine was a uh, a great example of that. Even the even the last song, they they get into that quite a bit, and it's not as interesting to me. It kind of feels like a a sloppier version of Helmet or something. You gotcha. Know? Yeah. Um, it just uh, seemed like a, I had heard that other places plenty of times, and wasn't they weren't offering much in terms of creativity there. I guess the last one of the last critical things I'll say about the record that that's a very difficult guitar tone to to uh to harness and control. Mm-hmm. There are some times when it sounds really cool and different and um has a lot of uh, texture to it. There's other times where it's just harsh and and difficult. Yeah. So uh even track 2 like the beginning of that song with the the way the guitar sounds there, it's difficult on your ears. I'd be curious to play that one of those guitars and kind of mess around with it, but I, I was going to ask: see. Are those still for sale? Like, are those currently made, or are those uh-huh. all vintage guitars? No, you can still get them. They're just—I imagine they're, they're extremely expensive. expensive. Yeah, like five-figure expensive or high four-figure. I think you're talking probably minimum like three to four thousand dollars. Wow, in that range. Um, there's other companies that make uh, aluminum neck guitars too. I don't know how the tone compares, but I can't imagine it's extremely different. Um, so, but but anyway, it provide it definitely provides a, di- a you know completely different tone for the for the guitar, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same point, it's pretty delicate. It can go from from cool to um, you know harsh and unlistenable pretty quick. And there's some times on this record where it's just it starts to grate on you, and it's tough to take, especially with the repetition. I mean, this band repeats a lot, um, and, the, and the reason it work, works usually for me is that they're performing the repetition, so it still has a variety in it, even though they're playing. Um, you know, the same riff over and over again at times because yeah. they're actually performing it. There's enough variation in there that it kind of keeps me interested, but um, it can be a little bit much on your ears. You mentioned that song, uh, the track to Pull the Cup. He's got that like little, that riff, which kind of goes mm-hmm. through the majority of the song. It's an mm-hmm. instrumental song, and it's, um, but the band sort of changes around him. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps it interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. he sort of varies the riff a little bit here and there, just in the way that he picks it or whatever he's doing there. I mean, he sometimes emphasizes different aspects of it. Um, and then it's like, you know, two and a half minutes into the song where it starts to actually change up into something else. Um, but it's really, it's about how the other band members sort of come in and then alter their parts around what he's doing, even though that what he's doing is really interesting and cool. Um, and the same thing with uh, track three, the Admiral. No, not Admiral. Uh, track four. Crow. Very. That's a very like kind of simple song. It's really just based around that guitar and and or sorry, the drum and bass riff. Mm-hmm. And then he comes in at like the three minute mark with that like jagged guitar part. Mm-hmm. That's again, it's not really. I mean, he's just kind of like playing two notes back and forth for quite a bit of that. And then he goes into like a heavier riff. Uh, but it's just like, and he's, you know, mm-hmm. it's very simple, but he varies it just enough here and there until he gets to the big riff part mm-hmm. um, that you can tell that these are guys who had played in bands before and are experienced and know how to like subtly shift a little bit here and there. So that you're not just hearing the same thing over and over again, but like allowing, you know, the drums to just subtly change or the bass to subtly change or the guitar to just kind of so that if one part is the same all the way through, or at least for, you know, the majority of it, the other band members are going to be like, well, we're going to shift this here a little bit and Mm -hmm. do that. I, I, you know, this is a band that doesn't put out a lot of records. They've only done like six in six or seven and, what I mentioned, like 20 something years, 19 years. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that they're hanging around practicing and playing all the time. I think this is kind of like they get together and write a couple songs and make a record. So it, it's sort of a testament to like, these are good songwriters, even though when you think of good songwriters, you think of like, you know, pop songwriters but mm-hmm. these are guys who really understand dynamics and, and keeping you interested throughout an entire track, albeit as abrasive and, you know, non, uh, non-pop as this is. Yeah, I would say tracks two and four really made me feel like being in the band room, like in, a good, in, in both good and bad ways. So. Like good ways, I felt like, oh, this, you know, I totally picture this band, you know, or being in this band and just jamming on the stuff and playing with the phrasings and, 
you know, setting each other up and, you know, building up and coming in and just all that kind of interplay that you have when you're in a band mm-hmm. in a room, just yourselves, nobody's listening. You're just playing for yourselves. I feel like those two songs, you know, if you've been in a band, I think you can totally relate to that. As a music reviewer, <laughs> I'm sitting there like, well, I'm sure this was a lot of this was really awesome when you're in the room and especially if you're creating it, but recorded on a disc, some of it falls a little flat, you know, it's missing um, that context of, you know, it being a record that people are going to listen to without the performance and need to still, um, you know, keep their interest and move them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was conflicted on that part of it. Part of me really liked it. Part of me was a little bit critical of it. Um, But there were certainly... Um, like you were saying, a lot of skill there as players, you know, to to do that, um, to to respond to each other and set each other up and uh, play off each other that well. Let's talk about our ratings for this record. Were the album better EP, decent single? I'm going to start, Jay, and I'm going to say that this is a worthy album. Uh I think that this works both as one of those records where I just like to listen to it all the way through and whether I'm working or mowing the lawn or whatever the hell, you know, I'm doing. But I also, there are certain songs where I would listen to that song and I'd be like, that is just such a cool riff. And I would go back and listen to it again and, you know, try to just like focus in on a particular part of the song. I think it works well in that way too. I don't think there's a lot of fat. I mean, this is a, you know, it's 10 songs and it's only... It doesn't even hit 40 minutes. Um, it's a pretty tight record. They didn't load it up with a lot of junk and a lot of uh, um, fat. I mean, you could argue that maybe there's a song here or there that has a little bit too long of an intro. Uh, you know, that's fine. But uh, I think for the most part, this is this is a really, really good record. Yeah, I think it's a worthy album. I don't think it's a perfect album by any stretch of the imagination, but... Uh, to your point, I think the weakest parts there were some of the repetitions and the setups. You know, they they kind of go on a little long, but the element of the performance saves that for me. Um, and it's also the kind of record where you know you, you'll zone out a little bit during those parts, and that's okay. <laughs> you know, because something's mm-hmm. going to grab you and pull you back. You're not going to zone out for the whole song. Um, so it, it has its flaws. But I think there's enough um, there's enough here from a performance standpoint, from a idea standpoint, from an emotional standpoint um, to make it worth a listen. All right. Well, if you have an opinion on this record, please head on over to our Facebook page or digmeoutpodcast.com and chime in if you think we're crazy that this is a worthy record, let us know. Or if you have more praise you'd like to heap upon it, feel free to do so. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Of course, you can always suggest an album for us to review by going to digmeoutpodcast.com and hitting up our request our review page. I want to thank everybody for listening. Jay, I just wanted to divert for one second. Um, as we're recording this last week, U2 released a new record for free um, through iTunes at the big Apple announcement. And they did so by uh, 
if if you were one of the lucky people, uh, they just put the album into your iTunes and into your um, players. Mm. Uh, what did you think of that? Well, it was kind of funny. When I heard the announcement, it was complicated to me. Like, I'm trying to understand what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's available on iTunes. We're giving it to everybody. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Um, so it was un- it was kind of funny to me when I when I heard it. I had a hard time. I, I consider myself a pretty savvy person when it comes to this kind of thing, and I to- didn't understand what the hell they were doing. And then for for me as well, that made it weird is that I am one of the apparently few people that is over the twenty five thousand song limit on iTunes Cloud or Music mm-hmm. Match or whatever the hell they call it. What this basically means is um, my iTunes just doesn't work right. <laughs> Um, so I've never gotten the record. It doesn't show up in my library. Basically, I've like broken my iTunes because I have too many songs in it, and so I couldn't. I can't even get the song to show up if I if I would want to, which I'd probably listen to it at least once just to hear it. Um, so I can't even get the song. It's not in my library on any of my devices. Um, but outside of my personal experience, um, I think they would have been better off just to make it free in the store, you know, and just let people who wanted it to go click the button and they would appear. Um, I think it's kind of funny that uh, so many people seem to get upset by it because it's not on your device. It's in the cloud. It's just available for you to play if you choose to. Right. Um, So it's not like they downloaded, you know, hundreds of megabytes of files onto your phone or something. It's just you can access it. Um, So that part of it I found kind of funny for the people that got upset about it. But... uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it could have been done better, but um, it was an interesting concept. I don't think do they'll be doing it any t- again anytime soon. Do you think that they did it this way because they know they made a weak record? I just think they're trying to be relevant. I, I don't know. Uh, the, I can't say if the quality of the record or not. Um, I think they're trying to be relevant, and this got them in the news, and just releasing the record in a normal way wouldn't have done that. Um, also, you know, they can say, regardless of how it sells, they can say it was the largest release ever or whatever. You know what I mean? They're always going to have mm-hmm. that sort of PR angle to take with it. Right. Um, so it kind of makes sales of the record almost irrelevant um, when they actually do start selling it in a month or so, whenever they're going to do that. But um, I don't know. I guess that's possible, but I didn't read it that way. Have you listened to it? I have not listened to it. I've I've read a couple reviews. Uh, Rolling Stone gave it a five out of five glowing review, mm-hmm. and uh, the other reviews that I've read on like Stereo Gum and I think Consequence of Sound and some other blogs uh, were pretty harsh. That hmm. this this was a basically a uh, possibly one of the worst albums that they've made. Just a complete lack of any memorable choruses and just a, a, a huh. totally like studio sounding, no life to it kind of bland production, just over, you know, overly done in the studio with killed all the sort of life in the songs. And um, yeah, I, 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 I thought of it at first, like, Oh, this is interesting. I can go get this record. And then when I found out that like, it was actually just populating in people's iTunes. Right. It's like, well, that's kind of weird because not everybody listens to you too. 
Yeah, you were on the same page as I was. Is that, oh, it's cool. I can go download this. Or I can, you know, you don't download it, but you can purchase it or add it or however you want to phrase it. And then when I started to realize that's not what it was doing, they were doing, they were just, they're basically buying it for you because it shows up as purchased in your account. Um, You're just not charging you for it. That part was weird and I think confusing for people. Confusing for people who want the record and confusing for people who don't. (laughs) Right. So that was probably, but I think the reason they did that is that way they could say, they could, you know, claim all those devices that it's available on as being released to. They right. wouldn't have done that. They would have that number wouldn't have been as big. So I'm I'm guessing it was a something U2 wanted to do um, to have that claim, you know. Well, reportedly uh, they made like a hundred million dollars on this deal. So yeah, and obviously Apple paid prepaid for everything. Yeah. So um, I thought the single was, from what I've heard of it, it seemed. I don't know. It seemed like classic U2 with a, I guess, a little modern edge with how that riff sounds, but I thought there was portions of it that kind of reminded me of, um, you know, a classic U2 sound, but I don't know. That was the one saying all that doesn't really, you know, the rest of the record could be a turd. And I'm no U2 expert. I don't know the last time I listened to a whole U2 record. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) I don't know that I really like the last, the, couple they put out as either yeah they haven't been real relevant as a modern force in music yeah. their spot well, got taken know, over by Coldplay. i do like that they're there we got to try some different stuff i'm tired of uh, i'm not going to try to stop myself from going on a rant here but i'm tired of like gene simmons and people like that who every time they get a mic and start talking about album sales because their recent records stink and nobody's bought them and they start blaming file sharing and subscription services. The reason why the music business is in the crapper. I'm so sick of hearing that. It's like things have changed. Deal with it. You know, um, music, radio, radio and MTV no longer are relevant. So people have to be made aware of records in some new way. Right, and we haven't figured out what that way is yet. So right now, basically, you know, the le- the remaining people who still listen to the radio, you know, it's really just generic pop music at this point. All of the genres have been killed in terms of you know radio as a discovery. MTV doesn't play music, so how does stuff break? You know, YouTube is like kind of a way to do it, but that's even who curates you know YouTube. Who are the people deciding like what the good shit is on YouTube? Um, so there's kind of this big void that is yet to be filled. And I'm glad to see, you know, I'm sure this thing won't happen again, but shit, I'm just glad to see people thinking of new ideas and some are going to work and some aren't, but geez, if we all just sit around and, you know, whine about file sharing and subscription services, killing the music business, we're, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. File sharing is the de facto, uh, excuse yeah, for anybody who is no longer relevant ex- yes. explaining their album sales has dropped off. Right. It's lazy. It's ridiculous. But it's for, for the kiss thing, let's move all ask statement on this, but the, the hilarious part of that is, is that um, I became a kiss fan based on dubbed cassettes from friends and hand me down vinyl records from my brother. Mm-hmm. I didn't buy a kiss record until I was probably, almost 20, you know, <laughs> or maybe a teenager. 
but I started listening to them when I was four, you know, five or six years old. And I wasn't going out and buying the records at that age. I, they were given to me for free. I was file sharing them. And I'm sure the vast majority of Kiss fans discovered the band through some free means. They didn't go out the first time and buy a record no. <laughs> with their own money. It's just like nope. completely, uh, it's just uh, intellectually dishonest, like not a way, completely void of reality and facts. So anyway, uh, I'm glad they tried something new. It was kind of goofy. Lesson learned, I think. Yes, lesson learned. All right, folks, we're out. Thanks for listening. Uh, next week we're going to be doing, uh, I think next week is a, we're going to be doing Corey Glover's album, which is the uh, lead singer of Living Color. He had a solo album out in the 90s. Danny Glover? Danny Glover. Murtaugh. And, uh, no, uh, Corey Glover. I, I, we have to watch all, all the Lethal Weapons this week? Yes. So uh, get your Joe Pesci and your Chris Rock ready. And uh, Is it Chris Rock? Is that who's in? He's Is he in... Uh, yeah, he might be in one. Might, I, I get those mixed the, up with. He's like the uh, sidekick, right? In one of those movies. I think he appears in one. Yeah. God, I hope I'm right. Or else I'm gonna sound like an idiot. <laughs> but they like added a sidekick like each Chris movie. Like, so like, yeah. <laughs> like after the first one, and like the second one doesn't like isn't like Joe Pesci the sidekick, and then in the third yeah, one. Yeah, like, I want to. I want to say like, isn't there four of them? Or five? There's four or five. After the second one, I, I feel like they started introducing sidekicks in every subsequent one, and I thought Chris Rock was a sidekick in one of them. Yeah. We'll have to look that up. And then they're like, Cousin Oliver shows up in the fifth <laughs> one, and then they, then they reboot it with uh, younger versions. and Yeah. So, uh, no, Corey Glover, lead singer Living Color. We're going to be doing his first solo record, Hymns, which came out in the late 90s. And uh, that's on tap for next week. So if you have an opinion on that, make sure to get it in soon. That's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.